last Sunday. And the referendum took place in another place. It took place in a country called Fearom. Anybody know what Fearom stands for? Fearom is the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia. And, and last Sunday, they had a referendum. Because it's all very touchy for the people there because they've got this strange name, Fearom, where they want to be called Macedonians. And they say, we're Macedonians. We've always been Macedonians. Give us back our name. And they had a referendum, and 90-something percent of the people voted in that referendum that that country would from now on be called North Macedonia. Trouble was, for the referendum to be valid, more than 50% of the population needed to vote, and it was just sort of on the edge. But the president said, we're going ahead anyway. The people have voted. We're going to call ourselves North Macedonia. It's been provocative. Why provocative? Because actually three-fifths of the historical area of Macedonia is in Greece, and the Greeks lay claim to the name. Macedonia, we're placing the place for us where Paul went in the Bible reading that we've had just a few moments ago. In New Testament times, Macedonia was the name of a Roman province which incorporated the modern countries of northern Greece, the Balkan states of Bulgaria, Albania, Serbia, and Kosovo, and the former Yugoslavian Republic of Macedonia. I guess some of you have been to one of those countries, at least give me a wave if you've been to at least one of those countries. Some of us have, anyway, been in that area. And this area called Macedonia was considered to be very strategic. It was a land bridge between East and West, between Asia and what we now know as Europe. Also between the North and the South. And Paul went to Macedonia. In the earlier part of Acts 16, before the passage that Deb read to us this morning, Paul sees a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And Paul responds to the vision. And he and Luke, who was his biographer, the person who was writing the book of Acts and was with him for most of the way, Silas and Timothy, who we heard about last week, they were his traveling companions. They conclude that they've got to go to Macedonia. They've got to preach the gospel there. And in the passage Deb read to us this morning, Paul ends up via a place called Samothrace and another place called Neapolis or Newtown. Anybody remember Zed Cars those years ago? Newtown, Neapolis. And they got to a place called Philippi. Philippi was described as a Roman colony and a leading city of that part of Macedonia. Philippi, I believe, was a very interesting place. They said about Philippi, it was more Roman than Rome. That can happen in a colonial situation. Anybody been to Corfu that's here this morning in church? If you've been to Corfu, you may have been to Corfu Town. Parts of Corfu Town are more English than England. They play cricket on the green. They drink lashes, lashings of ginger beer. And they play at being English. And in Philippi, they all played at being Roman. And Paul and Luke and Silas and Timothy and possibly others arrive in Philippi. Philippi was a different kind of place from the places that they'd visited already on Paul's first missionary journey in Asia Minor. The first thing that Paul usually did when he entered a new town was to seek out the Jewish population, to turn up at the synagogue on the Sabbath day 
and to preach the gospel of Jesus the Messiah, whether the Jews wanted to hear him or not. But in the Roman colony town of Philippi, he faced a new challenge. There was no synagogue and apparently no Jews. Well, actually, no male Jews. You needed 10 male Jews to constitute a synagogue. And so there wasn't one. But somehow, Paul had got it into his head. He expected that there would be a place of prayer down by the river. And on the Sabbath day, Paul and his friends turn up and they find a group of women there who are met for prayers. And very matter-of-factly, Luke says in his accounting acts, so we sat down and began to speak to these women. Now, as you know, Paul, as Saul of Tarsus, had been a Jewish rabbi. He knew the protocols. He could fit in. He could be recognized as one who had something to say. And as was the custom for rabbis, he sat down to teach. And it's then that we meet today's subject in the series entitled Learning from Disciples. And she was called, as Mark's already introduced us to her, she was called Lydia. All we know about her is in a couple of sentences in Acts 16. But I want to share some of the things that we do find there and see if we can apply them to our own lives and our own situation. Because this is learning from disciples. It's what can we learn from this story, from this person, from her experiences that's actually going to speak to us and minister to us as we seek to be disciples of Jesus Christ in Bridge North and beyond in the 21st century? Here's the first thing we notice about Lydia. It's pretty obvious. She was a woman. Now, Mark said a little bit about gender this morning. She was a woman. No messing about and we remember from the Gospels that it was considered less than proper for Jewish men to strike up conversation with random women. That's one of the facets of the story of the woman at the well where Jesus broke down a number of barriers by striking up a conversation with a Samaritan woman. And it's interesting that here Luke and Paul have no problem at all speaking with a group of women. This is countercultural. Apparently, the Pharisees thanked God every day that they hadn't been born a Gentile or a woman. Now, some of you know Paul is often given bad press as a woman-hater, a misogynist, but I want to suggest to you that this incident would suggest otherwise. Paul was quite happy to go down by the riverside and to meet with a group of women and to share Jesus with them. Here's the second simple fact we learn about Lydia. She was a woman, but she was a woman from a place called Thyatira. Thyatira was a wealthy town in the northern part of a region which was actually called Lydia. Today it's part of Turkey. The fact that she was called Lydia and the place was called Lydia raises a question for us. Was this woman actually called Lydia by name? Or was it a bit like calling a Scot jock or a Welshman taffy? I'm casting back to my first year in Edinburgh University those years ago, and in Biology 1 we had a boy whose accent we couldn't understand at all. He was from Orkney. And we didn't call him by his name. I don't remember his name. I just remember he was Orkney. And everybody re referred to him as Orkney. Hey, Orkney, pass me this. Pass me that. Was she called Lydia? Well, let's assume today she was. Thyatira where she came from, was a pagan city. The sun god was worshipped in Thyatira, 
and a games like the Olympic Games was held there in honor of the sun god. Thyatira was dominated by trade guilds. If you wanted to trade in a particular uh, area of expertise, then you had to join the trade guild and be part of its activity, or, or you wouldn't have a marketplace, you wouldn't have any trade at all. And each of the trade guilds held pagan feasts where immoral practices took place. These trade guilds were certainly not comfortable environments for monotheistic, righteous, living Jews. And Lydia from Thyatira, she was a businesswoman. She was a businesswoman, no doubt, part and parcel of one of the trade guilds for cloth. She had to be part of that. She traded, as we've already seen, in purple cloth. Now, when I visited Israel two years ago, as Benita will do at the end of the month, I visited a replica village from the time of Christ in Nazareth. Uh, and one of the people that we uh, met in that particular village demonstrated weaving and displayed the sources of the various dyes used to color the thread. For example, onions for yellow-brown. But I remember this lady pointing out to us that the most expensive, the most prestigious color of dye was purple. And typically the coloration came from the shell of a mollusk and required many such shells for only a small quantity of dye. And yet in Thyatira, they'd got an alternative source. They had a plant called the madder, and the root of this plant produced the same effect. Hence the relationship between Thyatira and purple cloth. And Lydia was a seller of purple. Lydia was evidently entrepreneurial. There were no major trade routes passing through Thyatira, but Philippi was a different kettle of fish at the heart of a Roman communication network. And here in Philippi, she sold her wares and was evidently wealthy enough to have a household of servants and, as we'll discover later, a house big enough to hold church meetings. Most significantly, Lydia worshipped God. Lydia, if indeed that was her name, didn't come from a very godly background. She came from this pagan background of Thyatira. And yet here she was in Philippi, a Roman colony, worshipping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob down by the riverside in a place of Jewish prayer. It's quite incongruous to think, how did she get there? How did she get into that situation? There's no evidence to suggest that she'd converted formally to Judaism but was most likely one of those sometimes described as God-fearers who recognized the one true God and associated with the Jewish worshipping community. And yet somehow she was on the edge. There was no synagogue that she could even be a part of. She was a group, one of a group of women worshipping God as best as they knew how down by the riverside in Philippi. In the past, but I suspect less and less nowadays, we'll find people in our society who could be described as worshippers of God but are not actively involved in Christian life and worship and, and witness. When church involvement was to some degree the accepted norm in our society and most people would Christian on a census form or hospital admittance slip rather than Jedi or non in the religion box. There would be many people like Lydia who had a sense of identification with a worshipping community, but maybe they weren't involved. 
30 years ago in Scotland, many people regarded themselves as Church of Scotland. That's Presbyterian, whether they ever darkened the doors of a church or not. And in the church I was part of in Glasgow, we had a mission team came from Atlanta to work with us for a couple of weeks. They were taken aback as they went door to door around our community by the refusals they received when they invited people to our meetings. The answer they invariably got was this, oh no, you see, we're Church of Scotland. And the members of the team from Atlanta came back and said, what's this Church of Scotland we keep hearing about? Is it a contagious disease? Because it seems to be putting people off having anything to do with the gospel. Several years later, I was on the Isle of Dogs where I was involved in a church, the Isle of Dogs in London, and I'd parked my car outside a lady's house, and I spoke to her as she came out of the house, and she was a Scottish lady, and I invited her to one of the meetings in our church in the local community hall, and there on the Isle of Dogs, she said to me, I know you see, son, I'm Church of Scotland. So, Sometimes people can put up the barrier and say, yeah, I'm part of something, but aren't actually part of it. And uh, I wonder if there are people like that in our society today who possibly in this community say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm Church of England, but are never actively involved in anything. We could call such people cultural Christians, maybe comfortable in a worship service, but not totally committed. In Scotland, we used to use the word adherence to describe non-members who were part of our community of faith. Or in other contexts, the word fringe or nominal might be used. Rick Warren uses the expression, the core and the crowd, the core of people who are involved in the life of a church, and the crowd were on the outside. And it seems in this context, Lydia was part of the crowd, albeit a small crowd down by the riverside. That day when Paul preached the gospel, she became part of the core. Or am I being unfair to Lydia? Should we think of Lydia not so much as a nominal believer, but as somebody who was actively seeking, who was open to meeting with God, was open to finding him, was open to finding what he had to do with her life? I guess there are two kinds of people in our community that are those who culturally identify with Christian faith but have nothing to do with it instead of barriers. But there are those, and we need to find these people who are seeking and want to know more about Jesus, want to know more about the gospel. Lydia was a worshiper of God, and Lydia was converted. Just listen to the simplicity of these words. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Luke doesn't tell us here the content, the content of Paul's message, but it's easy for us to guess from other contexts what he'd likely have said. Somewhere he says, we preach Christ and him crucified. Elsewhere he says, we preach Christ as Lord, Jesus as Lord. To the Jews he proclaimed Jesus as the promised Messiah. And whatever the content of his message on that particular day, Lydia was listening. We just got that word from the uh, Listening to God group to encourage us to listen. Lydia was listening, and as she listened, she heard the gospel. And I just love this sentence which says, and the Lord opened her heart. Sometimes we pray for preachers that they present a clear message. 
Can I suggest we should also pray for listeners, that the Lord may open their hearts. Lydia's heart was opened. She was converted. She was born again of the Spirit of God. She became a believer in Jesus. Lydia became the first convert in Europe. So as Europeans, there's a sense in which she is our spiritual mother. We should thank God today that Lydia was at the prayer meeting. Thank God that she listened to Paul and Luke. Thank God that the Lord opened her heart. Thank God that she became a believer because her becoming a believer has something to do with us being here today. And that is amazing. Here's something else about Lydia from this story. Lydia followed through. Simple sentence, it says, when she and the members of her household were baptized. Let me just read that again. When she and the members of her household were baptized. This sentence presupposes two things. One, baptism was not an option. It was obvious. It reads as the logical and normal follow-on from conversion. We complicate baptism. We assume we have to aspire to it, to be ready for it. But in the New Testament, it's not in contention. Believe and be baptized. But secondly, that's not all. Her household were also baptized. Here's what I think happened. Having received the message herself, she passed it on to those closest to her. They also believed, and there was a big splash on baptism day down at the river as they all got baptized. And baptism must have followed on closely from conversion. Why? Because Paul and friends were only in Philippi for several days. I'm going to ask you this morning, have you followed through? This may be your situation. You've listened. God's opened your heart to the message. You've believed. But I want to ask you in the context of this passage, have you been baptized. On the 27th of October, we've got a baptismal service here. James is, is looking after that uh, as things stand at the moment, and we have two people who are down to be baptized on that day. And I just want to put the word out there, the invitation out there, with the word that says, baptism wasn't an option, it was obvious. The Lord opens your heart, next thing you do is you get baptized. If you haven't been baptized and you're a believer, then please if God speaks to you today and says, think about baptism, speak to James, drop a note in Catherine's box or speak to Catherine during the, uh, the week and indicate an interest and we'll get in touch with you and we'll tell you what it all involves. But here's the second thing. Are you keeping your conversion to yourself or are you like Lydia telling others? Christian conversion should be an open secret. It's for sharing, it's for passing on, and Lydia's household got the message. There's another thing about Lydia. Lydia's heart was opened, and Lydia opened her home. The after-baptism and party was round at hers, and Paul and Luke were guests of honor. One commentator remarks, Lydia's open home <coughs> was the evidence of her opened heart. The only other New Testament reference we have to Lydia is later on in Acts 16. Paul and Silas were thrown into jail after Paul cast out a demon of a slave girl in Jesus' name. 
Her owners had been making money from her as a fortune teller because they lost their source of income after the exorcism. They weren't best pleased. Paul and Silas were in the stocks, lost in wonder, love and praise, singing worship songs through the night. There's an earthquake. Miraculously, no one is injured. And strangely, no one tries to escape. The jailer becomes a Christian along with his household. There's another quick baptismal service. And in Acts 16, 40, we read, after Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. Was this the first church in Europe? Lydia, the first believer? The, how, the church in Lydia's house, the first church in Europe, initially comprising Lydia and her household, a former demon-possessed slave girl set free by the power of Jesus, a jailer and his household. Back in the 60s and 70s, we would talk of a house church movement where groups of Christians met in homes. Is this the birth of the house church movement? Lydia used her home for missional purposes. Is that something you can do with your home? Or do you have other resources or possessions which can be used quite naturally and spontaneously for God's purposes? It's the last thing we learn about Lydia in our passage. Lydia was strategic. In the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2, there's a reference to a church at her hometown of Thyatira. The exalted Christ speaks through the apostle John to that church, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service, your perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. He then goes on to tell them what they were doing wrong. I just want to concentrate on what they were doing right. This was a church that in a very short time had come from nowhere to a church commended by the exalted Jesus Christ. Do you think Lydia had a hand in that? I think Lydia, as she went backwards and forwards between Thyatira, her hometown, and Philippi, the place where she sold, had a hand in that, planting the church in Thyatira. Did she take the gospel back to Thyatira on a purple cloth buying trip? It would be nice to think so. The Greek Orthodox Church hold her in high regard as Saint Lydia. They call her equal to the apostles. Just want to surmise a little bit. Was the first church in Europe, the church at Philippi, planted strategically? Philippi, a Roman colony, was not where Paul initially intended to go. In earlier verses, Paul and his companions traveled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mycenae, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Messiah, went down to Troas, and then during the night, Paul had the vision of the man of Macedonia. They ended up in Philippi. That wasn't where they were intending to be, but Philippi and Lydia turned out to be strategic for the gospel. If you study the history of the early church at all, you'll come across the argument that the relatively rapid spread of Christian faith owed a lot to the rapid transit system of Roman roads, to the Pax Romana, the relative peace which pervaded the Roman Empire, and the lingua franca, the common language Latin which was understood throughout the empire. Philippi as a Roman colony town was strategic, and Lydia was a strategic lady. 
Get back to the beginning of this when Paul and Luke and the others met a woman, a businesswoman down by the river. Would you have recognized her as strategic in mission? I want to ask the question, where are today's Lydia's who each have unique strategic opportunities to share the good news along their channels of communication? Perhaps we're here in the congregation. Perhaps that's what we're called to do. Very briefly, learning from Lydia. She didn't disqualify herself from mission activity because she was a woman. She didn't think as a businesswoman she should leave God's stuff to the professional missionaries. There's an international uh, network of Christians called BAM, Business as Mission. Constant travel on business can be a complete pain, but if this is part of your calling, consider BAM, Business as Mission. Ask me about it. A friend of mine bemoaned the fact that in our churches, we often regret the businessman's absence from the midweek meeting, but we happily pray for the missionary. Actually, the traveling businessman or woman might be just as strategic for the kingdom of God on his or her travels, and possibly even more vulnerable. In a strange town, Lydia associated herself with the people of God. That's a good thing to do. She listened to Christian teaching, and when the Lord opened her heart, she responded. She did what James said, as we heard a few weeks ago. She acted on what she'd heard. She wasn't just a hearer, she was a doer. She believed, she was baptized, she told others, she hosted the church in her home. And because of all this, we in this westernmost enclave of Europe and others across the continent are able to worship Jesus. Where does that leave us today? Don't write yourself off. Don't write yourself off as a woman, as a businesswoman, as a person from a pagan background. God can use you, whoever you are, strategically to further his mission. Are you ready, like Lydia, to listen to the good news, to receive it, to act upon it, and to share it with others? So an old song had uh, this line in it, There's a work for Jesus none but you can do. Are you like Lydia, ready to step up to the plate this morning and be the person that God has called you to be, to use you strategically wherever he has placed you and wherever you travel? Let me pray that we'll respond to that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for that story of Lydia, a lady in uh, Europe so long ago, a lady who in a sense seems inconsequential the only thing we normally think about her is the color purple and yet father we owe so much to that lady your gospel owes so much to that lady because she was prepared to listen to believe to follow through and because of her response to the gospel amongst many others were able to worship jesus here today Help us, Father, to see how we might be strategic and how you might be using us in your gospel and mission work in Bridge North, where we travel on business, where we go on holiday, where you may be calling us to be cross-cultural in mission. Help us to hear your voice and to respond to it, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.